the scholarship is uh, a gesture of gratitude and a gesture of optimism, a gesture of gratitude to Victoria for providing me with a home after I finished my earlier career, and a gesture of optimism because I do believe that this country is capable of making its way in a, in a, in a, a large world, a world that confronts uh, many uncertainties at this time, but is capable of doing it uh, in ways which display its own judgments, its own abilities to think and act, uh, and the qualities of its society. Every generation, I think, uh, lives at a time which it thinks is terribly special, it's different from everything that's gone before. But I do think there are signals out there that we are here at the point of, uh, a serious point of history in the making. And New Zealand has got to learn how to, uh, how to conduct itself, to position itself in, in that world. And the universities, particularly this one, uh, have a real job in informing and training people to do that. As Libby said, I was very lucky uh, in my career. I uh, both uh, practiced international relations with the MFAT and then I taught international relations at the graduate level at Vic. Um, I was very lucky. At the same time, on top of that, I managed to uh, set up the Center of Strategic Studies in 1993, uh, and uh, it was, a, it was a, an exercise which, thanks to the wisdom, or it sowed a seed, if you like, and thanks to the wisdom of Victoria University, it led then to the creation of a professorship uh, of strategic studies, uh, unique in its kind, uh, which now so well uh, filled by Rob Asen, to whom incidentally I, I was responsible for whom I was responsible in getting his first piece of gainful employment after he <laughs> left university. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I, I don't really want to... Hi, my now my excellencies, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, a very warm welcome to you all from near and far. As the founder and executive director of Diprosphere, it brings me great pleasure to welcome you for our special event, Forging an Independent Foreign Policy for Aotearoa New Zealand, Terence O'Brien's imprint. I hope you enjoy the networking drinks, which were generously provided by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade. I'm sure our guest of honor from above is also enjoying a glass of Chardonnay in hand. We have just listened to Mr. O'Brien speak about the establishment of the Terence O'Brien Scholarship at Victoria University in 2016. He mentioned two key points, that his scholarship is a gesture of gratitude and a gesture of optimism. In a similar vein, tonight's event is also a gesture of gratitude and of optimism. Of gratitude to Terence O'Brien for his significant contribution to New Zealand's independent foreign policy and to his life partner for 60 years, Mrs. Elizabeth O'Brien, who is with us this evening. And optimism, as his thinking and work are timeless and will continue 
our understanding of diplomacy and foreign policy for years to come. Mr. O'Brien has been a guiding light in the careers of many in this room and elsewhere, including my own at Diplosphere, which I founded nine years ago, and at the New Zealand Institute of International Affairs, as I was the first woman and youngest executive director for three years there. Mr. O'Brien spoke at 11 of the 75 international relations events that I led at these two organizations. This, the first was held in March 20, 2014 on perspectives on the crisis in Ukraine, should New, should New Zealand be worried? And this is the topic which is still relevant now. And the last one, and his last speaking engagement was in June 2021 on New Zealand, Australia, and China, a false choice, question mark. Tonight marks his 12th appearance, at least in spirit. His fierce advocacy for independent thinking and diplomacy has been a constant in my life as well. This evening, we are very fortunate to have an outstanding panel, which each speaker having a special connection with Terence O'Brien. I have the pleasure to introduce the Right Honourable Jim Bolger, former Prime Minister of New Zealand, Michael Coles, former New Zealand Ambassador to Indonesia, China, the United Nations in New York and the Pacific, and Senior Fellow at the Centre for Strategic Studies, John O'Brien, CEO of Carbon Market Solutions and former advisor at the UNDP, and also one of Terence's sons. Martha McKinnon, New Zealand historian and associate professor at Victoria University. And last but not least, Chris C., Chief Executive and Secretary of Foreign Affairs and Trade at Enfant. And we will hear Diplosphere co-founder Dad O'Brien for the concluding remarks. Each speaker has eight minutes for contribution. Small bell donated by the uh, guest of honor himself will ring when we will reach seven minutes, indicating one more minute to go. And no exception for the family. Before we start, a few household rules. Please put your mobile phone in silent mode, but do feel free to tweet at hashtag Diplosphere. In case of an earthquake, please draw cover and pull. In case of fire, please evacuate the building. In most cases, do not take the lift. Now, without any further ado, Mr. Bolger, the floor is yours. Thank you. Good evening, all. Especially want to acknowledge Elizabeth and her family. Difficult times for everybody, especially delighted to hear. And we've been given eight minutes. That means there's seven minutes, 35 seconds to go. We can relax. I'll try not to do more than 15 or 20. Here's Christopher O'Brien, global thinker. I think if anybody reflects on Terence's career in life, and his writings, what comes through to me more than anything else is the capacity to see past the narrow post-end issue 
and see further and with the global vision for what we, the world, might do. The title of this little panel discussion, I think, was Forging an Independent Foreign Policy. That we can agree with, but that must be, of course, an angular isolationist policy. That's what we must avoid. Uh, we have our own views. We disagree with some who think they're close colleagues, and they are. But we uh, have our own policy. I first met uh, Terence in a sustainable way in uh, back in when I was Minister of Labour. When we used to gather, we the ILO, International Labour Organisation, used to gather in Geneva. And I went there and spoke to them on more than one occasion. And of course, Terence as our ambassador there was tried mentor and kept me usually out of trouble. Uh, the fault is his, of course, we weren't there, but it, it was interesting. And then we moved through a couple of three years, 1983. I was uh, elected the president of the ILO. Uh, Robert David Muldoon allowed me to be away for about five weeks out of the country. I have no idea, but he did. Uh, maybe he was pleased that I was out of the country for that length of time. I have no idea. Um, but the, uh, the ILO, of course, started after World War I. League of Nations was designed to try and improve the social, I guess, infrastructure support for all citizens of the world, not just the few that had had the money as far as that goes. And uh, that was the whole conflict of social justice that the ILO was based on. So I was here in 1983 as, as the president of the ILO. Uh, that's a huge organization, size of the United Nations. Um, maybe slightly bigger most of the time. It has uh, delegates from the employers, the unions, and the government. I was the government, uh, obviously, uh, as Minister of Labour, I was the government uh, representative there. And President had the job of chairing a conference of a thousand plus delegates for over a month, challenging exercise. But the thing was, we didn't spend much time dealing with the labour laws of the countries concerned, whatever. It was, of course, during the Cold War era, so we spent most of our time debating international politics. Uh, and that was the issues that divided the, the, the thousand odd delegates there. And Terence was my right hand supporter, guide, advisor, mentor, and of course took all the responsibility when we made a mistake. Did somebody do that? Uh, so uh, that's where I first met Elizabeth and the family and Terence. And uh, foreign affairs had. I rented whatever a lovely home overlooking Lake Geneva, and we had many a reception up there. I would have to tell you, as New Zealand taxpayers, how much it would cost you for me to be president of the island. Quite a little bit. I was that, well, I'll use that term, quite a little bit. It was, uh, but it was an interesting insight to work with Terence at that time. Because, as I said, the issues were mainly global, not labor laws. Etc., which is tragic because it was set up to look after sort of social issues within the workplace. But it was certainly a very instructive period in my early political career, as far as that goes. And then the career went on and I became Prime Minister. Some people wonder why or how, but that's right. And, uh, and I was in New York speaking at the UN General Assembly. And uh, it was after we had had the uh, absolute uh, parting of the ways with the United States by New Zealand's nuclear free policies. 
and we weren't speaking to each other. There hadn't been a meeting between the New Zealand Prime Minister and the President of the United States for years because, as I said, we weren't speaking to each other. I mean, they were supposed to solve issues, but never mind. And uh, so in 1980, um, 1990, rather, I became a Prime Minister in, in 91, went across to address the UN General Assembly as, as common. I uh, have to say, Terence's background work was sufficient because he was ambassador then in New York. Delighted to work with him again. It was sufficient that I coincidentally spoke immediately prior to George Walker, Walker Herbert Bush, the first George Bush. Now, that meant there was a few in the auditorium, or more correctly, as I put out to President Bush, when we were having lunch after the event, he was fortunate I spoke first because then he had an audience to speak to. <laughs> they obviously came to listen to me and say, I'm for him. Quite simple. We did more than that. Of course, we, uh, again, through the good officers of Terence and his team, we organized a meeting, a secret meeting, because we weren't having meetings between the leaders of New Zealand and the United States. After the reception that the US had put on, etc., etc., we gathered in a big hotel room. Wife Joan and Barbara Bush over, over in that corner, they probably had very serious discussions over in that corner, and then George Bush and myself. Myself with uh, Terence as my support person, and um, George Bush had um, uh, General, oh, his name's just gone out of my mind for a moment, but it'll come back. And we sat down to have the first serious discussion between New Zealand and the United States for about 10 years on how we move forward from this impasse. And that's the advantage of people like Terence, who could see a different tomorrow and help to bring it about. Arrange a meeting, talk to somebody within the White House staff, no doubt, and uh, agreed that they would meet afterwards with myself and Terence in attendance. And if you look at my first book, you'll see a photo of that that particular event. So we started to build back with old allies, which are the United States. No, we didn't concede anything on being a nuclear-free policy. We stayed firm on that, and I hope New Zealand will always stay firm on that. And no, just to come right up to date, I don't think we need nuclear power submarines either. <laughs> and if you can find any Australian official who can explain why they need nuclear power submarines, come and tell me if I can. <laughs> I don't know what they're going to do with it, but fairly honest, but there you go. That is 400 billion plus, they might say fast, not that much money. One comprehension, but there you go. Um, so, Terence and I worked in those two uh, gaps, the ILO at one end and the United Nations at the other, and it was uh, a joy to work with him. First day, he was a global thinker. He saw the world in its entirety, good, bad, and, and indifferent. And, and that's where it is. I mean, the, uh, the essence of Terence comes through in the book, Presence of Mind, New Zealand and the World, that the Institute published. I'd love to think that every new member of parliament coming in at the end of the year got a hold of that book and read it they all would be much, much wiser as to where New Zealand fits in and thinks about world issues. And uh, I think it's uh, 
there's some wonderful insights in Terence's speeches and articles in that book. And uh, those of you who haven't seen it, haven't read it, well, then get a copy from someone. Do something because no, I mean, I mean very seriously, um, we are at a challenging time internationally, world politics. We know that President Putin and President Xi Jinping are meeting. We don't know what the outcome of that meeting is going to be, of course. We know we have a terrible war in Ukraine. We see every night a war in Europe, a land war in Europe. We thought we'd given those up in 1945. And here we are using more modern weapons, gathering more modern weapons to blow each other apart. Is there any other description other than madness? What are we trying to do? What are the leaders trying to do? I just wonder when we're going to calmly sit down and say, look, we only have one planet. We better concentrate on protecting that because as the UN said yesterday, they're not doing enough, quick enough, fast enough. Instead, we're spending hundreds of billions on weapons to blow up countries that we say we love. Look at those terrifying pictures you see on television every night. And the whole central cities are blown apart. That's because we love that country. He says, what Mr. Putin says. It's part of us. We need people like Terence O'Brien, who think like him, who can see a different tomorrow, because we can't continue down the path we're on. We just can't. Where does it lead us to? Total destruction? Nuclear war? It's threatened now every second day. It's almost common now by inference to threaten nuclear war. How mad are we getting? So I just say in recognizing the extraordinary person and diplomat that Terence was, as I said at the beginning, a global thinker. We need more global thinking. We need New Zealand to be in the front of global things. We can't force anybody to do anything. We're too small. We don't have the power. We don't have the money. We don't have any of that. All we can do is lead by intellectual argument and persuasion. And that we have no limit on doing if we have the ability to do it. And to challenge New Zealanders to step up and not be silent. To speak up, to seek to persuade others they should follow likewise. No, we don't need nuclear powered subs. What good is this? If anybody knows, we'll just put their hand up. I'll wait for 10 minutes. <laughs> so, thank you for the invitation to be here. I'm delighted to pay tribute to my friend Terence. I'm terribly sorry. It's not with us, but his contribution to New Zealand and New Zealand's foreign policy will last a long, long time. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Bolger, for your 
words of wisdom. Our next speaker is Michael Coles. Please join me by coming in. Thank you very much, Matthew. Thank you, and Fiora Kato. I'd like at the very beginning to uh, endorse and, and repeat in many ways the remarks of the former Prime Minister uh, when he spoke uh, about the uh, pleasure of having uh, Terence's family, uh, Libby, and, her, and most of the family here. I think that we, we say a lot about families of foreign service people, but we don't often do much about them. And I think having them present at a function like this is really crucially important. And I think that was a wonderful thing to do. I will not try uh, to list the reasons why I am here uh, today. Uh, that would be difficult. I think that um, we all believe that parents deserves honoring for his contribution uh, to the lives of, of, of all of us. And I'd like to borrow the words of the late Merv Norrish in the foreword which he wrote to Terence's publication, Presence of Mind in New Zealand and the World. Merv referred to, quote, the enormous debt that thinking New Zealanders owe to Terence O'Brien. That was written some years ago. Uh, it applies is even more so now. And what I would like to do in talking to you, rather than giving you the my own wisdom, which is not great, on, uh, on foreign relations and Terence's role in it, what I would like to give you is just, just one example of Terence's exceptional foresight and wisdom. It appears in a contribution which he made to a conference held by the NZIIA in 2015 to mark the 70th anniversary of the United Nations. The conference papers uh, were edited by Brian Lynch, who is here this evening, uh, and published in 2016. Terence had contributed a paper entitled The Challenges of Maintaining Small Nation Influence. A challenge, incidentally, which I believe all Aotearoa New Zealand diplomats have wrestled with from time to time, some of us most of the time. Uh, this is an extract from Terence's remarks. The task for smaller countries like New Zealand of maintaining influence inside an international system of increasing complexity becomes no easier. Equality of responsibility and equivalence of obligation inside the international system are for great and small countries alike indispensable to rules-based behavior. The China-United States relationship will be a paramount influence in the future. Both countries possess a strong sense of their own exceptionalism, mandated for each by providence, it seems. The United States has a well-established practice of standing aside from multilateral rules or from negotiating processes where it deems these to infringe American sovereignty or interests. That is an example which China may well be disposed to copy. We would hope not. New Zealand foreign policy interests identify clearly with even-handed dis disavowal of that principle of exceptionalism and resistance to any sense 
that the interest of one great power necessarily or automatically trumps the interests of the other. Excuse me. Walking the right line here is a supreme challenge for New Zealand external policy, unequaled in our previous international relations experience. We must act as required, together with like-minded others. This may involve drawing a distance from New Zealand's traditional This may involve drawing a distance from New Zealand's traditional mainstays and keeping different company at different times on different issues. Maintaining influence depends vitally on reputation, which itself requires constant cultivation. Those were Terence's own words, and I commend them to you. I think they are as relevant today as they were when he gave them. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Michael. It is important to voice resonate um, again today. Um, our third speaker is uh, John O'Brien. Please let him in. Kia ora. Um, my name is John O'Brien. I am Dennis's eldest son. He had uh, three sons. One's me, the oldest, Daniel on the back, brother Tim, who's in Australia, and uh, a sister George, who's in Auckland, who couldn't be here. And I'd also like to pay tribute to my mother Elizabeth, who's sitting in the audience and who spent hours editing my speech. And everywhere I wrote my father, she changed it to Terence. <laughs> right, so I'll try not to make that mistake. So I, I think you all heard from the audio that my father was um, passionate about young people. And he really believed that young people need to be encouraged because young people are often less cynical than older people. And young people uh, believe that, you know, some of the strands of insularity that existed in New Zealand foreign relations should be changed. The world is a lot more global now. And one of the reasons he gave the scholarships at Victoria University is he believes in the power of young people. And perhaps one of the reasons he called his uh, uh, memoirs The Consolations of Insignificance, they're not yet published, uh, is reflecting his world viewpoint. Um, you know, my father, sorry, Terence, who widely acknowledged as an informed and interesting commentator on international affairs, in that he was someone who thought deeply and had a huge library of books. Um, he was a gifted speaker, he had a warm, outgoing personality, and he was widely called upon by journalists, especially in New Zealand, for insightful comments on international affairs. Uh, and he aimed, after he left uh, foreign affairs, he aimed to help the public understand um, complex issues in, in, a, in a way that he viewed things, which is that New Zealand needs to be more independent. One of the things I think that characterized my Terence was that he had this integrity. And after he left and set up the centre, he was willing to uh, speak um, truth to power, even if it got into trouble sometimes. For example, in the early 2000s, he criticized the decision at the time to purchase or to want to purchase F 16 fighter planes, uh, which he thought we didn't need. And that wasn't very popular, it landed in a bit of hot water. And uh, he was also not afraid to speak his mind. So, for example, in 2003, when the uh, Gulf War uh, and the United States called on New Zealand to 
10 forces for the second Gulf War, he received a call from the former Prime Minister Helen Clark, who's asking for his viewpoint, and he said, no, absolutely not. There's no UN resolution. This is misguided. We shouldn't be involved in that. And um, former Prime Minister Helen Clark told me that was the best foreign policy decision I ever made. Probably why she didn't end up being the human secretary general. Leave it aside. Anyway, my father, Terence, believed we believe in soft power, as was mentioned by former speakers, and that small countries like New Zealand uh, could influence international relations by uh, their way of arguing. Arguing, and, that, and he also believed there's no one way of doing things correctly, and that success, being successful, doesn't necessarily depend on the you know Western way and imitating that way. So what do we mean by an independent foreign policy? Well, there's two things. One is an intermittent pattern of behaving differently over a long period of time. And the other is on some big one-off decisions. And the big decision that really, I think, set New Zealand on the course where the world saw us as more independent or different was the anti-nuclear policy um, when you know the USS Buchanan was refused entry into the ports. And of course, banning US warships from New Zealand ports by being, being a member of ANZUS at the time appalled certain politicians and senior public servants at the time. And that while it seems normal now to say that you know, New Zealand is anti-nuclear, back then it was, it was quite uh, controversial and, and debated. And um, the, the Terence, in his memoirs, he made a joke about this because as former Prime Minister Bolger said, we weren't on speaking terms, he said the closest contact that the New Zealander came to an American official in the 90s was when my son, John, bumped into Dan Quayle on the top of Vale Mountain on the skiing and I bumped into Dan Quayle and his wife. And his wife said, I love your foreign policy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then uh, he also, like, he got along well with former Prime Minister Longy, who once famously quipped the American ambassador who had who had horses. One of his horses was called Lack of Reason. He said, Oh, you're the only American ambassador who's got a horse named after your foreign policy. <laughs> anyway. And, and Daniel, my brother, found a cable from 1990 in the uh, right honorable Jim who's here today, uh, um, was speaking about the anti-nuclear policy and how we need to reaffirm it. And Terence written in the margins of the cable, this is pretty clear. Honest Jim has said what was said at the Yale speech and more. Now there's a real chance for foreign affairs to work properly. <laughs> anyway, so Terence understood how difficult it is for the United States to change in an environment in the 21st century where relations between countries will be conducted in a more diverse international environment and where the international rules-based system uh, is not working as well as it should. Um, BRICS account for 50% of world GDP and 70% of world's foreign currency reserves. The days of the you know, hegemonic um, situation that the US once was in are over. But this doesn't mean, as, as Mother Elizabeth told me to make sure I mention this point, that my Terence was not anti-American, someone suggested. It's not true. He admired the US and its contributions and its legendary capacity for innovation. What he didn't like was the hypocrisy having all these UN rules and treaties that are selectively followed sometimes and other times they're not. You know, for example, the 2003 US invasion of Iraq is okay, but the Russian, of Ukraine, Russian invasion of Ukraine is not okay. For him, they're both equally uh, abhorrent and both are not okay. Uh, you know, he didn't like that countries such as Russia and China should be bound by the rules, but the U.S. could selectively apply them. But that doesn't mean he's anti-American. So I'm going to say a few words about the U.N. So my father believed in the values of the U.N. You know, the U.N. was set up to free the world from the scourge of war. He saw the U.N. as an important forum for nations to discuss issues like conflict resolution, peacekeeping environment. And he thought as a small country, New Zealand, it's in our interest to um, follow the rules-based order. 
And uh, he, his highlight of his career, I think, was being in New York in the 90s when we were on the Security Council. And he was incredibly grateful to Right Honorable Jim Bolter for allowing him to serve on the Security Council. And um, he, he really believed that the UN, though, was in need of dire and urgent reform. It's got a crisis of, uh, of, at the moment that there are huge bureaucracies, inefficient, overlapping mandates, and that the UN is often toothless. I also spent time explaining to him the internal justice system and how there's issues with the lack of accountability, how the United Nations uh, evaluates itself, it audits itself, it investigates itself, and the investigation units report to the senior management who are often doing the wrongdoing. And he knew and understood how uh, it, it's a serious problem. Um, and he un understood that the UN needs reform. I want to say a few words about relations with New Zealand and China. My father, Terence, believed New Zealand must accept the emergence of China in the 21st century as a major power. He understood the US-China relationship will set the tenor for modern international relations. But the key point is he thought that the United States and China should try to be friends. And if there are differences, uh, I would say that Honorable Ambassador from China said that New Zealand should not have to take sides. New Zealand should not have to choose. Are we with the US or are we with China? Um, he thinks that New Zealand's insecurity is not best served by a single-minded dependence on one large patron, the US, and he noted that the bulk of New Zealand's trade, I think it's over 50% now, goes to China and Asia, leaving New Zealand potentially vulnerable. Um, he's also thought of the New Zealand Defence Force, it should be more involved in UN peacekeeping operations rather than uh, interoperability with, with NATO. In the economic sphere, my Terence pointed out, New Zealand has a whole of government policy towards Asia, but in the defense sphere, New Zealand continues to focus on the Atlantic, uh, NATO, and the US and Europe. Very few words now before I finish this up, before Matthew rings his bell. On the Middle East, um, Terence thought that uh, it is self-deceiving to believe that there's no connection between the rise of radical Islam and the um, wars that were spent, uh, from the West, which were bent on spreading interests and values in the Middle East, and a mistake has been made uh, with the invasion of Iraq in 2003, which he thought was totally misguided. Last point, Russia-Ukraine war. So this is interesting because most people don't, don't think this. So I spent 12 years working in Russia and Ukraine, and I've been to Kiev many times to Minsk, to Moscow. I understand how the people think there. Um, and I discussed it with my parents only a few months ago. And, you know, the origins are complex. It uh, comes about from... There was the end of the Soviet Union and the Cold War and the relations between NATO and possible expansion. So I explained to my father that while we all agree and give him agree that an invasion of one country is totally wrong, the situation is not black and white. Having been to Crimea and Eastern Ukraine myself and met with people, the people in those areas are much more Russian than they are European, whereas in the West the situation is different. I explained that it's not black and white to my father, that it's grey, and he said. Um, yes, he agrees with you, and I think New Zealand should stay out of it completely, not take sides. And he once remarked in his final months, he thought that Zelensky was pulling Europe and the world into World War III by its nose. That doesn't mean he's pro-Putin, he just understood that it's more complicated than just the CNN summary of the good guys against the bad guys, and he believed in, in, uh, in um, you know, peaceful resolutions, I think we all do. And um, so I think what makes my father unique is that he understood that New Zealand's interests were not necessarily best served by just having things as black and white, and we need to have our own opinions about things and to look at things in a bit more depth and with more complexity. And um, he had hundreds and hundreds of books, and he, he loved what he was doing, and so I miss him. Thank you.
Thank you very much, John, for speaking with your heart. Our next speaker is Malcolm McKinnon. Please welcome him. I think I come from Qatar, and uh, thank you uh, for the welcome, Matthew, and I'm especially pleased to visit and it's good to be here. Um, one of the advantages of being four is that you know you're not going to get to eight minutes because much of what you want to say is already been said, and I don't want to uh, punish you by repeating some of the insightful points that uh, the Reverend Walter Michaels and John have just made. Um, I didn't actually know Terence that well. I, I got to know him when he was at CSS and I was often at seminars with him and was always struck by his very cogent and insightful contributions to those discussions. But I thought that therefore rather than try and, and recollect uh, personal episodes uh, in the friendship, I would look at what he wrote, and I, I didn't have that book to hand, but I went through all the many, many articles he wrote for New Zealand National Review, uh, probably up to upwards of 50. And it was interesting to look at them and to think both about the recurrent themes, which in a way we've already touched on, but also the way that these sit within what I would think of as um, historian myself, history of New Zealand foreign policy. So I took out of that reading, and, and I could have taken many more um, themes, but I thought there were three that were worth uh, dwelling on. The first one, which uh, John was just speaking very eloquently about, was the significance of the United Nations and the significance in Terence's mind of multilateralism as being something that needed to be grounded in the United Nations. Now that you can see as a lineage going right back to the establishment of the United Nations in 1945, and the role that Peter Fraser and his team in particular play in trying to ensure that the United Nations will not be simply a great power organization, but a genuinely organization of all the nations of the world. And that theme comes through all the time in Terence's comment, and he's often quite sardonic about what he sees as, as it were, claimants to the UN mantle. He's very interestingly very very critical when it starts up about the G20, seeing it as being something that was attempting to sort of rival the United Nations. He's also similarly questioning of NATO's claim to a global footprint. And he talks equally, and of course, this relates to the Iraq um, situation in 2003, exactly 20 years ago this week, I think, um, of organized arrangements like coalitions willing. So that was uh, one strong element, and he's, he often also talks about what he thinks is New Zealand's very um, anodyne contribution to UN peacekeeping um, forces. If you wonder about that, have a look at the number of peacekeepers of Ireland deploys compared to the number that New Zealand deploys, as I just wanted to see the point that Terence is making there. So that's that was the first thing I took out of the uh, reading through Terence's writing. Second one was the importance of New Zealand engaging directly with rising regions in the world. And obviously, that could be, in some respects, distilled into a single word, namely China. But I think what really comes through in Terence's writing, however, there's much more to do with the whole of the, if you like, the second and third worlds, as they were at the time, maybe when he was first. Uh, trying his diplomatic spurs in the 1960s and 70s, and New Zealand confronted a much more economically insecure world and had 
to establish relationships with oil states, with communist states, with states in Asia, which had previously had relatively little to do with. And that notion that you had to keep on developing those relationships is a really strong theme in the, in the period where I was reading all these articles, it was much more focused on Asia Pacific. So yes, China, but also the states of ASEAN and Japan and Korea, seen in their own terms, not just in terms of their alliance with the United States. And I think one can lay that out and see that it remains as relevant at the moment as it was through those years that I was looking at this writing that terms. I was commenting on these kinds of issues and their importance. And as I said, I think that goes back to the 60s and 70s, but we can see it as an ongoing theme um, into the present and into the future. And the third um, theme I was going to take out and will take out is the theme of the anti-nuclear policy. And this has also been touched on. Now, I think there's an, an interesting nuance in the, in my view, the anti-nuclear policy within New Zealand, the way that it achieves such widespread support in New Zealand had a very strong NIMBY element. It was very much a not in my backyard policy. It didn't necessarily for most New Zealanders uh, have a lot to do with concern about what was going on in the rest of the world in terms of, of the nuclear issue. But the Terence, and it comes to very strongly in all this writing, the whole point about the anti-nuclear policy was its global implications and its passionate commitment to disarmament, to opposing nuclear proliferation, um, we know that New Zealand was involved in setting up in 1998 the new agenda coalition was designed to try and advance nuclear disarmament. Um, I'm sure Mr. Bolger might be able to say something about that. And of course, more recently, there has been the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, to which New Zealand is a signatory and which had its first substantive meeting only last year. So I think this was another theme where uh, Terence is rising and thinking was talking about the anti-nuclear policy, but not just as a trademark of New Zealand identity, but as something which was desperately important uh, for the world as a whole. And I can only echo uh, Mr. Bolger's uh, closing comments in that respect, that this has never been truer than it is at the present time. It was a, it was a terrifically stimulating thing for me to go through all Terence's writing. It reminded me of what a rich and uh, versatile and principled thinker he was. And, um, and he's missed. Uh, so thank you. Thank you very much, Michael. What a tremendous effort to go through um, 15 years of work. Um, we're very grateful. Our last speaker is Chris Seed. Please welcome him. Thank you, Matty. I've got the bell here, so um, I'm told of my life. Uh, well, look, it's it's um, it's wonderful to be here. Can I just say, Elizabeth, um, our you know condolences to you on the loss of Terence to the family. Uh, Terence is a very special pe uh, person to many people in this room, uh, and it's just wonderful to see the turnout and the acknowledgement that your presence um, uh, speaks to his uh, the contribution that he made. To New Zealand in, in, in many walks of life. Um, I'm uh, among those who personally have reason to um, express gratitude um, for uh, Terence's um, involvement in, in various times of my career. Um, I'm also uh, grateful actually to be here. Um, Terence was a slow left arm spinner. 
um, not, not much challenge. This is cricket for those who aren't familiar with it. When I was a youngster, we were playing at um, Kelvin Park. Um, Terence, uh, for some reason, decided that the further the batsman hit him, the closer we should all get. So fielders kept being moved closer. So six, closer. Terence had a very sort of particular way of speaking. Six, another six, closer. Um, he obviously decided that expendable young second secretaries could get closest of all. Uh, we could hear the batsman breathing. Um, there was yet another six. And uh, Gerald McGee, who uh, should, uh, was, is here tonight, eventually yelled out, Terence, you need everyone closer <laughs> to the boundary. <laughs> so we were all allowed to move away and, um, and recover. Now, Terence, um, I must say, as a young person, Terence took a I came across him several uh, several times in my career. He, um, although we had very different views um, uh, on geopolitics uh, and um, on a range of international events, his encouragement uh, and the way in which he stayed in touch uh, was uh, is something that I hold very dear. I do have presence of mind. Um, New Zealand in the world. His um, his book. Um, I do have his salutation in it. Uh, generously. Thanks for all the help. I think that was said with irony. Uh, Terence, um, uh, so I have five P's that I wanted to, to draw on. Terence was a practitioner, a diplomatic practitioner. He had a career that touched the South Pacific, this included service there and in Asia and in Europe and in New York, uh, across our economic security, bilateral and multilateral areas um, of our diplomatic tradecraft. That is the message, that is a message that my generation of leadership of the ministry continues to deliver to our young recruits and our young diplomatic officers that they need to build capability that can operate across very different jurisdictions because that tradecraft requires exposure and experience of that sort. Uh, he was purposeful. Um, after his diplomatic career finished, he built up and out um, in his academic uh, career uh, as a lecturer and um, uh, and as a teacher uh, and as a commentator. The, la the last event where I saw Terence was at uh, Professor David Capey's inaugural speech. As a professor, David was the first uh, employee that Terence um, brought onto the um, onto the staff of the Centre for Strategic Studies. So he had grown, he had passed on um, that, uh, that wisdom and David's um, uh, promotion to, to his professorship. Terence's presence there, I thought, was a, an absolutely uh, wonderful thing. Uh, Terence was pragmatic. Uh, he, I don't, he wasn't starry-eyed uh, about the world. He recognised the limitations. Many others have spoken better than me uh, to his sense about how a small country uh, uh, is obliged to work in the world. Uh, uh, so, but, but as a result of it, his judgment and his recommendations were all the better for it. Uh, I was always um, absolutely struck by his sense that part of New Zealand's diplomatic toolkit needed to be a professional equipped defence force that was one of the essential assets which New, which New Zealand requires to provide uh, and protect our interests in the world. Uh, he was, and I use this term, it's an oldish term, but he was a patriot, a small p patriot. He 
He was invested as a diplomat and as an academic and a commentator and as a citizen in the goal of um, sustaining and advancing New Zealand's interests in the world. And no matter the disagreements on policy, the interests that Terence spoke to about fair-mindedness, about the New Zealand operating in the world with the absence of grand design, uh, the absence of resort to coercive power, about having a capacity for impartiality and for bringing a problem-solving mentality, they are all, they, he saw these as all as being assets in modern international relations. And they need to infuse and do infuse our modern foreign ministry. He was passionate, and I think we've heard plenty of that today. He was passionate about multilateralism. He was passionate absolutely uh, about New Zealand. Uh, I think he drew, the, drew a link between the dogged, focused, persistent advocacy and the example of how we secured our future as um, the, as, um, the UK left, um, joined the European common market back in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, and how that needed to move and did move us into a designation of a diplomatic service with a greater sense of confidence and identity about the region in which we needed we, we needed to operate and we did live. And I always thought as a young officer, um, his, um, his sense before it was, it was commonplace, he un absolutely understood the way in which national reconciliation is at the heart of the New Zealand political <coughs> project. That the Treaty of Waitangi, the things that it stands for, and the way that we have decided as a nation to build that out politically was absolutely not only essential for New Zealand, but gave us a, a point of difference in the way we thought about the world. I'd also say that um, as, a, as a practitioner as, and, as a, and as an operator, Terence also taught me some good things about, um, about uh, political tradecraft. I remember my, uh, an engagement with him when I was a very junior officer, very junior second secretary on, the, uh, on our delegation to the UN, um, the um, Commission on, um, I'm sorry, I lost it, uh, UNCEP, anyway, Environment and Development met across several prep comms in New York, finished up with the Rio conference. Um, the Australian um, the Australian leader of the Australian delegation was Sir Ninian Stephen, a, a former Governor-General, a fine man, uh, uh, a great uh, advocate for the trans-Tasman relationship. But in that way of Australians and New Zealanders, he tended to um, reduce things to the colloquial. So it was, it was Terry. Terry this and Terry that at our meet, morning meetings. Uh, so after the second of these, um, um, there was a, a, an urgent meeting amongst the New Zealand delegation. I see Peter Wright is here. Um, he was he was the one sent away to deal the message, deal the, um, the the message to our Australian colleagues. If you keep calling our guy Terry, <laughs> we're going to start calling your guy Ninny. <laughs> At which point, everyone has resumed on all on their sides. But it was the St. Terence's sense about his ability to um, see the humor in the situation, also to see a solution, uh, and that ability to, uh, you know, to engage in the moment and, uh, and, and seek a solution. Um, he, he will be much missed. 
uh, his contribution to our, uh, our diplomacy, uh, to our um, conduct of our relations in the world, uh, and to the modern foreign ministry uh, is immense. Uh, and on behalf of the foreign ministry, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be able to speak today and to acknowledge that. Thank you very much, Chris. It's wonderful we're on time, thanks to the bell donated by the guest of honor from above. Um, so we have time to take questions and comments this time. Um, one and a half hour, uh, sorry, one and a half minutes for comments or questions. Um, please wait for the microphone. One microphone for the speakers and one microphone. Before you start, please state your name and function and speak in the microphone. Um, yes, please. It's the gentleman at the back. I have a question, but first I do want to pay tribute to Terence. I've just been reminded by Roy Ferguson that uh, 50 years ago he was my boss in foreign affairs. And um, I had a science background. So he was the only senior member there who improved my writing without pissing me off. He was a terrific club. One of the important issues, it seems to me, in developing an independent foreign policy is the importance of developing a bipartisan approach. No one has mentioned the problems of a bipartisan approach. I'd be interested in the comments of the panel, because if there is too much internal disagreement on foreign policy, it's an open invitation to our friends, as well as our enemies, our friends such as Australia and America, for example, to interfere with what's going on locally. So I'd be interested in the views of the uh, panel, uh, oh, by the way, my name is Morris Hornsby, a long retired member of the Thank you. Councillor, it's come to me. I have to say, I think your ambition has been fulfilled to a very large extent. I've been across the world many times with different governments here in New Zealand, and New Zealand's foreign policy is a pretty standard, universal one. It's not so vast differences between. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and I'll draw a comparison, a very easy one, between, say, the US and uh, where you have two very distinct approaches shown in the news most days. 
where New Zealand's approach is very much to come. There was a possibility that we would have huge divisions on the nuclear policy. Uh, that lasted for a relatively short time until I sort of uh, bridged that gap and brought that together again. So we don't have any differences of any consequence there. On um, trade policy, both parties in New Zealand, with the major parties that will lead the government in the future, have a very common approach. We have a very common approach. I'm looking at the ambassador's excellency from China here with it. We have a very common approach to our engagement with and acceptance of the importance of China to New Zealand's future and so forth. So I think the concern you raised is not a, not a real one now in New Zealand. Of course, there are the outliers, but uh, I think we work pretty well as a country with a pretty common uh, foreign policy. Um, I was wondering what uh, Christy would think or as well, personally. I'm curious if you don't mind, Christy. You're wondering what Christy thinks. Um, well, let me, uh, so a couple of points. The first is I would certainly reinforce uh, Mr. Walter's point and I think the point of Morris's uh, intervention. Uh, that bipartisanship is a fundamental, um, has to be an ambition uh, for the New Zealand government, for the New Zealand parliament, for the New Zealand system. Uh, that isn't arrived at, though, um, by, um, uh, by providence. Uh, it's not, uh, as Terence um, actually spoke about, some parts of the New Zealand system believing that we had special skills uh, uh, divinely given as as uh, mediators. Uh, Terence actually makes the point in some of his writings very well that our ability to operate in the world, but also to build our consensus domestically, comes about through hard work, through policy analysis, through uh, testing ideas, uh, through exchanging uh, views uh, with the um, with various parties uh, in our parliament and that is a continuing uh, challenge uh, for our, our country and, and, and for many others. I would also say just in looking historically um, it's clearly the case that there have been areas of where New Zealand foreign there hasn't been bipartisanship. There wasn't bipartisanship over the Vietnam War. There wasn't bipartisanship over um, exporting contacts with South Africa. There wasn't bipartisanship over TPP. Uh, so the fact that those issues have been dealt, dealt to and addressed has actually come about because there has been an investment subsequently um, across the parliament, across the political uh, system about figuring out a way forward. Uh, and that really takes me to my point, to the point I mentioned about uh, where uh, Terence's point that he often went back to about um, that idea of reconciliation sitting at the heart of our uh, of our national political project, and that, you, that some of the skills and some of the journey we've been on there is actually applicable, including to the way we think about foreign policy. Thanks, Megan. Thank you very much. Any other comments from the panel? We're going to take another question, please. Yes, please. It's a gentleman. But yes. If you can please speak loudly. Uh, my name is Kevin Z. I'm a, a local uh, in the Chinese newspaper, Home Voice. Uh, my question is uh, I want to ask you, Roger. 
and uh, about China and New Zealand, uh, America also build up the balance uh, because a uh, couple of days ago, uh, Campbell American top office Campbell Campbell visit Wellington uh, about talking about build up the high te technology relation with the New Zealand and uh, America. But uh, look like I feel in the Cold War world coming to, to the, the so how can we do uh, to avoid uh, American to cut off on uh, New Zealand Western China uh, the relation like build up the high technology and stuff so, yeah thank you bit of a challenge to answer because I didn't get it quite clearly are you uh, referring to the fact of uh, the concern in many quarters in the United States in particular some in New Zealand that Chinese high-tech firms will be gathering data on New Zealanders and New Zealand issues and so forth. Is that your concern? Yeah. I have to say, uh, I'm no expert on high technology, but I presume that all the major powers have broadly similar capacity to gather data. That it's not a skill that is uh, only uh, retained by one particular country or two or three countries. So my guess would be, I was talking about this only the other day to someone, that whatever skill the Chinese companies may have to uh, capture data uh, would be matched at least by the United States and with Europe. So uh, I think if you worry about uh, something being captured, then don't say it in the first place. That includes on your phone. Thank you. That's reality. I mean, uh, I uh, have to say I'm no expert in this field. I know how to work the phone just about. Um, but um, that's today's reality. It is possible to capture extraordinary information with modern technology. So, uh, as I say, if you don't want it out there, better not say it. Thank you. Can I just add to that and say that we should, we should bear in mind that it's not just people who are not our friends or whom we don't regard as friends uh, who do the listening. The listening is likely to be uh, from our very closest neighbours that's worth bearing in mind. Going to take another question. Yes, please. Yeah, I'm Harry Crawford. I am an expert in the area. Excellent. Anyone that wants to talk to me about the question, then should say access to the board. So you disagree with anything I said? Yeah, some of the countries that you mentioned are very aggressive in attacking our, our digital and technologies. Um, but more generally, I'm interested in how Terence's legacy is translated in, and uh, works today. It feels like, to me, listening to the panel, as if our independence has become a policy of appeasement, and that rather than calling out tyranny and injustice, we're more likely to appease People like Vladimir Putin and so on. Well, give an example to you, Rich. Give us an example of this impeachment. The question is, it, 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 we keep referencing a policy that's 40 years old. Do we have the guts today to do what we did 40 years ago? I protest at the way you that question, I, I will deny it totally. I think we have to show extraordinary guts 
to pursue the kinds of policies that we are now pursuing, which entails through friends and people who may not be friends, expressing our views to them and listening to their views. See nothing, nothing lazy or easy about that kind of approach, but others may have. I just want to say something. Appeasement is the wrong word. New Zealand hasn't been appeasing Vladimir Putin and strongly condemned the invasion. Terence's view was that we need to be even-handed. If we're going to apply international rules and laws to one country, we need to apply them to all countries. So I think, uh, with all due respect, appeasement is the wrong word. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, please. Yes. Uh, Matthew Fitchell, historian. What lessons do you think we can draw from the Dirt Cold War? Um, I've not read uh, Terence's work. I was born in 1991 at the end of the Cold War, and it, it seems like the best case scenario of the current uh, conflict between China and the US is that it, it remains cold. And I just wondered uh, from those of you who are familiar with Terence. Work, uh, what our friends, our leaders can position itself and potentially a, a new Cold War. Just a brief uh, response. I think it's very difficult to take the Cold War One of the reasons being that the two competitors, if you like, are deeply economically intertwined with each other. It's not true. Secondly, and this is perhaps more debatable, you could argue that they don't represent completely distinct ideologies, and certainly not um, crusading ideologies. States might seem rhetoric in trying to avoid uh, a deterioration. Um, so, if we put the framing to one side, except that tends to be a semantic argument, I'm more interested in the institutional experience that New Zealand built up. It seems like that's where, you know, in the Cold War context, that's where New Zealand forged. An independent foreign policy. What lessons can we draw from that time frame? If you have a small country that is buffeted in this mean geopolitical world, there are there seem to be some similarities between the position that we're in now. I think this is a question we could debate for hours and hours. And unfortunately, our time is limited. On this map, Malcolm has given a very the lady at the back, please. I regret calling up the American Um, my question might be a bit of a softball to end on a light note, but um, given your knowledge of parents. Um, if there is one thing you think you would wish to be conveyed to United citizens from an understanding of New Zealand's point of view, um, this is your chance for a one-liner. 
You're welcome. Um, but if there was one thing you wish you would be conveyed, um, be it United States or other countries, what do you think that line is? I'm going to jump up and say, speaking truth to my heart. <laughs> Practice what you preach. Speaking truth to power. The lines are all far too short. I think what the New Zealand has displayed almost universally is realism. We know we can't dictate to other countries, maybe a small Pacific Island for a week or two, but you know, the realism is we're a small country. We don't have huge economic power, we certainly don't have huge military power. What we can have is persuasive power. We should concentrate on our strength. Yeah. Yes, please. Hi, Dr. Gaines, and I'm from Victoria University. Probably leading on from what you were saying, Roger, in terms of thinking about this, what can we do? We are a small nation, isolated. We have some strong relationships which come and go, but realistically, when you think our place is in the world, that has changed significantly over time, and perhaps some of our moral standing things like things that have been policy has changed. Do you think we stand now? And do we actually have much importance being a tiny little country at the bottom? And I'm making some leading words. We are a small country. Um, the world is in constant change. It's reflected a little bit in the lifetime of people as old as me. We grew up in the British Empire that ruled the world. The sun never sat on the British Empire. There was some part of Britain that still had the sun. And that's until a poor little man in India called Gandhi. And when India went to independence, that was the end of the British Empire that ruled the world. So what we've seen over the years is the changing centers of power. And um, the uh, Western Europe, Countries of Western Europe rule the world before influence of the word I'm looking for, influence and until the end of World War II, when power moved across the Atlantic to the United States. No question about that. That's what happened. Uh, I'm looking at the uh, ambassador from China in front of me, and I would agree with those who would say that power is now moving from the United States to China. And uh, how long? Well, you can speculate, but China is the epitome of one of the great problems of the world, which we're not touching on. And that is, of course, the decline in birth rate. And very old societies in China, right at the front of this because of the one child policy, um, that uh, we now see other issues emerging. We come to avoid just locking ourselves in the thinking of the past. How are we going to manage society when we have very many older people than we have young people? Yes, artificial intelligence will do some of the work. Can't do it all. So we've got new challenges that are quite different challenges. And what, if anything frustrates me, you'll cross with all of them, is nobody is really addressing some of those. They're real, 
just starting to emerge in some countries. It's starting to face that fact, but it's here. It's already here, and it can't be changed. We've seen what uh, France having a terrible debate still is on retirement age. New Zealand will have in 20 years twice as many people on the retirement pension as now. Do you think we can afford it? If so, tell us where all the money is now. Twice as many. That's permanent. There's no guarantee. That's not speculation. They're already born. They're 40 years old. These are some of the challenges we need to be looking at rather than ancient history. We have time for one more question. Yes, I will take both of you actually if it's short. Okay. And then well, it's... Peter Adams, and being a former member of the ministry, I have great respect and fondness for Terence, for whom I am directed as a junior diplomat. I wonder if there's a risk, though, of uh, conflating independence with even handedness. Even-handedness is certainly, as we've heard tonight, a take the distance, uh, a kind of highly useful principle for making sure that we don't simply go with the flow without traditional training. Uh, but there will be times in foreign policy issues when uh, independence, is, independence is not even-handedness, and we do have to fall off on one side or the other of an issue. Take Ukraine, for example. So we say that it's absolutely unacceptable that Russia should invade Ukraine. But then we also say, well, what about the United States? They invaded Iraq, and we didn't uh, agree with that. So therefore, we won't take a view. We'll be even handed. I think on an issue like that, independence should not be conflated with even handedness. Independence is actually forming a moral judgment. It is not right down the middle, but recognizes a difference in the circumstances. Thank you. What did they, so would any of our panelists like to comment on this? Yes, please, Green. Yeah. I think they're uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Peter. Yes, just to, just to reinforce the point. Um, I mean, I think to pick up a bit the, the, the question here. The uh, New Zealand's ability to operate in the world is um, we do have agency, we do have ability, and Terence, um, as much as one dis disagreed with them, and properly so, on a whole range of um, uh, uh, judgments or the, uh, policy positions he exercised judgment on, at the end of the day, it, you know, he was certainly open to that the, the big issues had to be debated and you had to have a view. And on Ukraine is a perfect, is in a sense, a perfect example, both of where I would disagree with Terence and support Peter on this. Um, the, the New Zealand government, and a properly commissioned government, um, uh, the full support of the parliament, has been outraged by what's happened uh, in Ukraine. That is why we have sent material support. We have provided humanitarian support. We've allowed... Um, uh, preferential arrangements for Ukrainian visa holders to come to New Zealand. That's why we're supporting the ICC and the ICJ and their prosecution of Russian war criminals. That's why we've got over 100 people, uh, NZD and colleagues, training um, Ukrainian forces in the United Kingdom. Because something material, which is undermining the international system, has happened. 
And uh, uh, independence, to Peter's point, is not sitting on the fence and saying that this is the same as, a, as, as something that happened in Iraq. These are very different events. And New Zealand, the New Zealand government of the time has taken a very firm position because they've exercised judgment in the, in the name of the citizens of the country. Thank you. Thank you. Any other comments? Could I just make a quick comment? I think a little bit of misunderstanding. I don't believe, Peter, that Terence argued for sitting on fences and not taking positions. I think he argued rather for taking clear positions and being prepared to speak up. I think being even-handed means being prepared to speak up. And that's what I believe we have tried to do. We have been, been, we have not been perfect. Necessarily always consistent, but that's what on the whole we've tried to do. Just recall it was mentioned earlier that New Zealand didn't join the Second Iraqi War. We made a judgment, Alan Clark's government, a judgment that that wasn't justified. And it was a very wise decision in retrospect. I mean, uh, the whole jack-up that there was a nuclear threat there, nuclear arms, and all the rest of proof be absolutely wrong. And I, uh, I think it, it's a difficult balance, but I think it's one that New Zealand has exercised with some prudence and I think some skill. Uh, we won't get it right. Of course, we won't have all the information, but I think we have across political parties, it's not partisan, it's just, uh, I think, uh, how we have positioned ourselves, and I think as a small country, wisely positioned ourselves as well. Thank you. Just a last question, please, and uh, we wrap up. Thank you. Yes, please. I'm Ray Salvin. I'm from the United Nations Association. I'm president of the Um, I really appreciate what you said about the um, uh, independence and independent foreign policy. Although I think I feel that the better, uh, more fully explained that it was was intended engagement because it's a lot of engagement uh, in Terence's um, ideas. But the question I want uh, want to ask is about the um, security. We live in a world where most people, when talk about national security, they look to the to defence. Um, is there any argument that for saying that our parents' ideas provide a basis for our security? Michael, would you like to take that case? Just wanted to say what Terence said in some of the stuff I was reading is that the majority of New Zealand's trade is China, Asia, and Australia, which make up 70%, but our defense relationships with the Atlantic and with the US. And so he just saw that as a vulnerability. But I, I don't think of, he saw New Zealand as a country that should engage deeply and effectively with all partners. And so being an independent country means looking at everything from a unique New Zealand perspective. New Zealand's not the same as the other Anglo-Saxon countries because we have the Treaty of Waitangi because of our location. So. I think that was summed up. I would agree that that I think Terence would agree. What we've been going through for the last few decades is this transition 
what I mentioned earlier, the British Empire, but also being totally identified with the European issues, given our settlement policy and so forth. That's not uh, over, over the last couple of centuries. That's not surprising. But that has moved, and I recall speaking, excited the New Zealand media, a couple of them here. I recall speaking in Singapore a few years back, and some questioner wanted to quiz me, they're all economists, uh, as to how we could develop our relationship with Asia, since you know, we're so far away, according to this particular uh, question. And I pointed out that he was totally wrong. Our history had been engaging very closely, particularly in trade and economic terms, with Europe, which was much, much further away. From a modern perspective, I said to him, and this is what I'm more excited, I said, from my perspective, we are part of Asia. You get a map of the world out, get the naturals out, you'll see which part of the world we're closest to. I mean, uh, and demonstrably, it's Asia. You know, the largest Muslim country in the world, Indonesia, is relatively close to us. And we've got to move a little further from our original settling, which was the British Empire, to the world that exists today. And we're doing that. And, and we're not only doing that intellectually, we're doing that if you look at the uh, composition of New Zealand today. It is so dramatically different to what it was in my youth. And we know that, and we see it, and we welcome it. Thank you very much. Now I invite Dan O'Brien for some opening <coughs> remarks, please. So I just I want to start quickly, but that for Terence. I said that Terence was here today. He would have an opinion on everything that Pete said, and it would be quite strong. So just to just to sort of nuance that, and especially on things on new issues like the Ukraine war, I think we've got to be careful when we represent um, other people's views as well. Exactly, uh, exactly what it is. There's always nuance in what he said when we talk to him. Anyway, I'm going to conclude. Uh, so, hi, I'm Dan O'Brien, I'm Terence Libby's third in line, uh, spare to the spare, so to speak. Uh, I support Matthew as co-founder of Biblis there, usually I'm taking on the tech jobs, um, but also helping with ideation write-ups, of which there will be one uh, for this one today, so stay tuned on more on that. And in my day job, I help New Zealand tech startups build and grow with Amazon Web Services. Good to see you here, Tristana, very exciting. Um, quite different from a uh, field from, uh, from Terence, but one that only enriched our conversations that, that we had. And in Libby and Terence's house growing up, when we were young, we debated current affairs, often, usually loudly, Dad always wanted to hear our views, and later in life as well. And he tested many ideas on us, like, like guinea pigs to a certain extent. The themes when it came to New Zealand's place in the world we've discussed today resonate over decades, even-handedness, versus exceptionalism, independence of mind, the inexorable shift from West to East, the, the precept that all foreign policy begins at home, the importance of reconciliation and the Treaty of Waitangi for Aotearoa New Zealand, the multilateral rules-based world order, which has stood New Zealand in such good stead, a deep appreciation for history, but an ever youthful gaze to a better future. Reviewing dozens of Terence's articles and talks in the past few weeks confirmed the consistency for principle and approach. But I thought the starting point of today that Matty brought up is also a great way to conclude. Matty picked up on Terence's points of gratitude and optimism. I think all our speakers will agree these hallmarks have come through in Terence's works. And here are some of the points from the speakers that I quickly uh, that resonated. I'll 
get a better write up later. But I think um, uh, first from the right on Jim Bulger, I really, I really like the line. Uh, all we can do is lead by intellectual example. It's a fantastic uh, calling call uh, for young New Zealanders, for all New Zealanders, because it is the way that we can make our impact on the world. I love hearing the anecdotes about the ILO, the UN, uh, and, and the presidential uh, meeting there. And the thought about being independent, the nuance between independence and isolationism, the difference there, um, and, and it's not the same thing, right? Um, that, that's great. And from Michael Pauls, uh, the comments on the, the challenges of maintaining, maintaining a small nation influence, that, that speech, um, I, I like to point around the delicate choice, the walking the right line with the, the emergence of China and the US uh, in this new world. And from my older, older brother, John, uh, used to be in the upper, I've uh, got to get that in there. Um, <laughs> the, the power of young people, um, uh, you know, that was really important. I mean, it's absolutely the case. Um, uh, and the best foreign, uh, foreign policy decision made by uh, Prime Minister Helen Clark raised that point, which, which was really uh, a good one. And I think that the, the thing around the United Nations, and John, you especially taught, obviously, having worked at UNDP for so many years, a big advocate of the UN as well, um, but, but its need to have reform as well, um, that was a big belief in that as well. Uh, and Malcolm uh, McKinnon, um, I just wanted to recap, you know, the importance of New Zealand engaging with rising states, especially in Asia, uh, but not just, not just China. Uh, the legacy of the anti-nuclear policy and uh, commitment to non-proliferation, um, absolutely. The importance of UN-based multilateralism uh, and the fact that you reviewed so many of, of uh, Terence's writings over the last, uh, from the last 15 years. And the importance of peacekeeping, that point around peacekeeping was really interesting. Uh, and finally, on proceed on your personal reflections on, on Terence thinking on using a foreign policy cricket. I completely, I just got hit for three sixes about two weeks ago, and I had dad um, who's sort of talking in my head, and he was saying in my head, he was saying, hey, give the ball flight, Daniel. But I just got hit for six again. So I completely can uh, think about that. And the five Ps uh, that you mentioned, um, practitioner, purposeful, pragmatic, patriot, lowercase p, and, and passionate, uh, and seeing a solution, a pragmatic, I think especially pragmatic, seeing solutions and things um, uh, was great. And so I'll, I'll end up um, with this. So thank you, panelists. Thank you very much. We know how much effort goes into preparing this, and we appreciate it. Uh, Terence also published a book. You've seen that today, Business of Mind, which some of you may be interested in. He also wrote nearly completed memoirs that John referred to, uh, which the family is working to get published. Um, there's, some, there's an info sheet, if you haven't picked it up, uh, which has details. Uh, you feel free to pick one up. Um, and there's information about Diplosphere, uh, and you can keep up to date um, on the blog post that we're going to summarize of this proceedings today. We're at Diplosphere. We're small, independently funded through conferences and events. Uh, so we run on the smell of an oily rag. Uh, we do fly under the radar, but a nimble, responsive, independent, hopefully even had it. Uh, we love the stuff. Uh, we rely on your support. So thanks for coming here, especially after the Blue members. And thank you, MFAT, for the consideration of drinks, including the Chardonnay. And a final ending note on gratitude and optimism, Mum, uh, Libby, I should say. <laughs> I know you have enabled Terence's part and acted as a sounding board for his reflections over the years. And Matty, what an effort is as a founder against the odds, sick of diplosphere, and as Dad said late last year, you make things happen, bigger and better as to come. Thank you.